For Stephen L. Sears, becoming a writer did not mean complete abandonment of everything he had learned as an actor. Those lessons would come in handy when it came to character development in his new career. So yeah, that started off the career. And a lot of people have said, well, you gave up on acting. I said, no, I didn't give up on acting. I just, I backed into something that I was totally unaware of that I just, I can't tell you how much I love it. I still love acting. I still do performances. I like before COVID, I actually did um, a stage. I was uh, of Macbeth. I was Macduff in, uh, in Macbeth. Or I'm sorry, nice. Duncan, not Macduff, Duncan. I played King Duncan um, with uh, Renee O'Connor and her husband, Jed Sura, uh, in a production that was done down um, in um, uh, San Pedro because uh, they have a nice arts district down there. And she had asked, she knew that I was an actor at one time. We'd always been kidding around about me actually being in something that she produced and it finally happened. Uh, Renee O'Connor, by the way, was one of the stars of Xena. So anyway, um, I still love acting. I still love performing, but I really love writing so much more. And I never even knew it. That was the beginning, but here's the thing. You were writing detective shows and they were fantastically popular detective shows, but they were reality. How did you make that transition from shows that were fictional characters in reality to fictional characters in a fictional world, such as Xena? The shows like Riptide, even though they're detective shows, they were the, the physical laws and the universe were ones yeah. more familiar. Yeah. They were fictional characters, but they were operating in the real world yeah. that existed for everyone. If, if you excuse the fact that our good guys could be chasing after a bad guy and shooting their guns back and forth. And then when they're pulled over by the cops, they just get a parking ticket. Yeah. Uh, if you excuse those particular conventions. Well, that, that's but. nothing. I mean, when they shot Vegas out here, he'd be going from downtown to the strip and it took him about 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, but, but in the 1980s, that was, you know, those were accepted conventions. Yeah. So you could, you know, you could take a bulldozer and tear down a house. And, you know, if you did that in the real world, obviously there'd be repercussions. And this one, you just had a cute little whimsical tag with the, uh, with the attractive other person. Uh, but yes, I know what you mean. So going to fantasy and also sci-fi, because I've also done sci-fi. Um, I've done superhero. I've done sci-fi. I've done fantasy. I've done drama, comedy. I've done the whole gamut. No and this, intended, but that's a whole different world. It is. Uh, however, there are two things that um, have helped me in the, that regard, because that's that's actually a very important observation. Believe it or not, uh, the easiest thing um, relatively in this business is breaking in. As hard as we all look at it that way, it's easy to break into the business. Uh, staying in it, that's the hard thing. And that requires a certain adaptability because the business goes through cycles. Detective shows are popular at one point, and then suddenly it is emotional dramas, and then it's sitcoms, and then it becomes fantasy. How do you survive the change of those cycles? And I have. One thing is that no matter what the environment is, every, every show, every script, every TV series, every movie, it's about characters. It's always about characters. 
I can write a character in space. I can write a character on the ground. I can write a character in the past. I can write a character in the future. It's a character. I have to be able to make you, the viewer, identify with that character. And I use every convention I can to normalize that character. Once you believe in the character and you like the character and want to follow the character, I can take them anywhere. The second part of it is that um, you don't want to push the bullshit meter. And the bullshit meter is usually activated when you violate your own rules. Uh, I always used uh, the classic Star Trek as kind of an example of this. Um, even though at the time, Star Trek was, uh, for all the idealism that Gene Roddenberry had about the show, there were certain things that they had to you know, keep to because it was the 1960s. But one of the things that Star Trek did very well is that they were consistent in most of their rules, such as physical law. If you're traveling in space, and you can transport from one ship to the other, well, that's magic. Unless you give the empirics that it's science. You don't have to explain it, you have to justify it. So I found out that, uh, I realized very quickly that sometimes it's the limitations you have that define it in reality. For example, the transporter, yes, you can go from ship to, to shore. Well, you can't do it while the deflector screens are up. And you can't do it when there's a certain phase array that's out of sequence, okay? That really means nothing because I'm not explaining the science, but if I stay consistent to those rules, you will buy it. So even in the world of fantasy, and fantasy is the hardest one to do this with, uh, especially when it's involving magic, you have to set up rules that you follow. It can't be that you set up a wonderful dilemma for your characters and suddenly they pull out a wand and they say, get them out of them, expect them, and boom, they're out of it. The audience doesn't accept that because that's just magic. But if there are rules to it, uh, I think it was Frank Lupo had this great description about it. He said, bullshit has its own logic. If you convince them the bullshit is logic, they buy it. They buy everything. So those are the two most important things about traveling between all of these particular areas. But the most important and the one that is mostly ignored is that it's always about character. It's not about robots. It's not about special effects. Those are all cool and awesome and I love them, but it's character. Well, I mean, go back to Star Trek, your example. If you look at the original Star Trek and everyone after it, it wasn't so much the effects. It was the character development. Yeah, yeah. And when, it the, was when the- Spock becoming real for that moment. Right. Human. And people, Spock is a great example because Spock was supposedly so alien that the, you know, the network originally wanted to kind of push him to the back. Um, but what people began to recognize was there was a struggle going on inside of that character between the logic and the emotional side. And everybody has an identification with that. We have a visceral side. We have an emotional side. We have a reactive side, but then we have the social face. And also right. we're deny ourselves some things. We think we are... We think we should achieve certain things, but we always blame ourselves for holding ourselves back. So he became a huge character as a result of that. Kirk was a huge character because Kirk, Kirk was the hero without being a hero. Kirk was a captain, but by his basic nature, he was heroic. Uh, there was a saying that um, I believe Rob Tappert first mentioned this to me uh, while we were doing Xena. Rob uh, Tappert was one of the co-creators and exec producer of Xena. And he he also produced Hercules, and he made an observation one time. He said, Hercules is the hero that you hope will come and rescue you. But Xena, for example, was the hero you hope that you can become. 
And that had to do directly with the fact that, and this is not against Hercules, that Hercules was half God. And so therefore there was kind of a, an avenue for his, his being a hero. But Xena was a mortal. But so you hope you can be thing. that hero. These people, if they were ordinary people, would not be attractive. Xena, a very strong woman. Some people would admire her, but society, by and large, would not. They would look at her in a certain way. But because she's Xena, this fantasy character in this fantasy kingdom, in this fantasy land, she becomes someone that people like. Xena is a very interesting character in that regard. Obviously, the, the Xena fandom still exists. Uh, the show's been off the air for 10 years, and for 20 years, yeah, and it still exists. Still First of all, it can be recognized that when you do sci-fi and you do fantasy, you are actually able to address certain issues head on without threatening people. That was a, one of the things about classic Star Trek is they did in the 60s. They did, you know, shows on racism. They did shows, uh, they did anti-war shows. They did all sorts of things. But because it was science fiction, the viewer did not feel threatened from their own particular opinions. If they were pro-war or if they were racist, you know, hopefully they were enlightened, but they were not threatened by it because that was in the future. So fantasy allows you that particular avenue. Uh, the thing about Xena is that, first of all, Xena touched into... Um, and we'll learn about the evolution of Xena in the next episode of Beginning.